The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Most versions of the Civil War portray American Indians as spectators or, if involved, fighting on the side of the Confederacy, like the forces of Stand Wadi and others at Pea Ridge. But in fact, many Indians fought and died for the Union, among them those who served at a small but significant battle, Honey Springs, in Arkansas, 1863. We'll talk today about that battle, unjustly obscure, and what it might have represented in the larger meaning of the war, with our guest Mark Laus, author of Race and Radicalism in the Union Army, on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on the first show of our new season, the eighth season, or maybe seventh, I've lost track, the new season for 2010-2011 of Civil War Talk Radio, coming to you from Greenville, North Carolina, home of East Carolina University, broadcasting today not from my office, but from the home headquarters of World Talk Radio due to a scheduling situation. It's uh, it's the day that Hurricane Earl is striking North Carolina, and I'm looking outside at the bright sunshine uh, and mild temperatures. We've suffered through perhaps a quarter inch of precipitation and wind gusts up to five or ten knots last night, but otherwise I would say the hurricane was pretty much a bust here in uh, in Greenville and eastern North Carolina. Uh, so that's not why we're we're not at the uh, the office today, but for other reasons. But uh, as always, we speak uh, on the show just for me. My guest will speak for himself, not for East Carolina University or any other institution, as is always the case. Well, it's been a long summer, a uh, chance to 
regenerate interest, read some new uh, publications on the Civil War era, talk to people, attend the Civil War historians gathering in Richmond in June, and generally recharge the batteries, getting ready for a new season. We have some very interesting guests lined up in the weeks ahead, and I hope you'll join us to listen to those. If you are so moved and want to contribute to the future direction of the program, you can do so uh, both financially through uh, the miracle of PayPal. Uh, contributions can be sent to civilwartr at aol.com. Uh, that will be used to help purchase books that will be the subject of future shows. And you can also send uh, to me at my East Carolina email address suggestions for people you'd like to hear from or topics you'd like to hear discussed on the show. Those are always welcome. In the several months since we've done the last show, things have gone on here, not just uh, in the Civil War world, but also here at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters. I'm proud to report that my oldest daughter has begun college on her own, uh, not here at East Carolina, although I think she could have gotten in had she tried, but at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, which uh, everyone listening to the show will, of course, associate with Joshua Chamberlain of the 20th Maine. Uh, Chamberlain, the colonel of that regiment, was is Bowdoin's most famous graduate, and his house is still there as a museum. I'm not sure how much my daughter was moved by the Civil War connection. She had other reasons, but I'm happy to report that she's well on her way to a college education of her own. And I'm equally happy to report that here at uh, East Carolina, my own situation has settled down, and I uh, have been asked to serve as chair of the department, not acting or interim chair, but the real chair, whom the other faculty must actually respect and not simply outweigh. And uh, I've also been promoted to full professor, which means I am no longer uh, liable to the taxpayers of North Carolina for doing any work at all the rest of my career, uh, since there's nothing else they have to give me. So I'm very happy about both of those developments and can now throw off the mask of collegiality and become an unbridled tyrant uh, when I'm not just sitting back with my feet on my desk smoking cigars in violation of the building's uh, health policies, none of which I would actually do, but it just, it's a pleasing fantasy, of course. Uh, in real life, though, returning to that, it, it's uh, a season upon us of, of some excellent uh, new books to talk about, uh, new directions in civil war scholarship to explore, and we will be starting with that today uh, with discussion of a small but very interesting book called Race and Radicalism in the Union Army. Uh, its author is Mark A. Laus. Dr. Laus, are you there? And try again. Dr. Laus, are you with us? Oh, yes, I am. Ah, wonderful. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Congratulations uh, on the promotion. Thank you. Thank you. It was, uh, uh, I was very happy uh, to get only, considering my, my previous career as a museum historian, this was only 16 years uh, out of grad school that I <laughs> reached the pinnacle of, of our profession. I know what you mean. It, it does take a while sometimes. It does. Um, 
Do you mind if, if, if we go by a first-name basis? Uh, please sure. call me Jerry. That sounds uh, fine. Move things along here. Um, no, we haven't had a chance to meet, I don't think. Uh, I don't think we have, no. Uh, but uh, sooner or later at, at a conference, I know that will happen. I'm if, sure. Uh, your book uh, was at the most recent conference I attended, the uh, Civil War His- Society of Civil War Historians. Uh, it was on the... University of Illinois Press table, and that was what, uh, if my memory serves, I think that was what moved me to get in touch with you. Uh, it looked very interesting, and now having read it, I can say it certainly is. Um, Thank you. But l- let me, uh, uh, our, our listeners often like to know a little bit about uh, uh, the background of individuals. Uh, you teach at the University of Cincinnati? I do. Uh, I was promoted to full professor a couple of years ago. Uh, and congratulations on that as Thank well. Thank you. That's of course that's of course uh, you described it very well. Takes a, it takes a weight off when you get to that point, doesn't it? It it does. The uh the 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 system of sort of limited ranks of promotion, uh, the tenure system and then the, the the promotion that can follow uh for for some people and I I'm certainly one of them not having additional pressure frees one up to to focus on work to actually get things done exactly uh, so in contrast to what i think state legislatures tend to believe that now we now we don't have to do anything if we don't have a, a blowtorch on our necks at all time we won't actually serve the taxpayers it, it's not that way at all but it's hard to convince people of that sometimes that's true well uh, what um how long have you been at Cincinnati? What, what else have you done, or where were you before that? Um, I came here in um, 1989. I am uh, um, a product of a sort of like gypsy circuit that many historians are on for years and years and years mm-hmm. before they wind up uh, going into a tenure-track job. So it's, it's, uh, I think all of these careers never quite follow um, uh, the path that they're set out on, do they? They rarely do, and that's a, a good point. Well, I'm glad things settled down and, and worked out for you. Uh, now, this uh, this book uh, that I just read, Race and Radicalism in the Union Army. Uh, your first book was not uh, a Civil War book; it was, was social history in the 19th century, but not Civil War related. How, no. how did you get uh, How did you get to the Civil War as a topic? Well, I've always been interested in it. I've always been interested in uh, labor history, and um, what I wound up doing is sort of uh, writing in the in the areas where they overlap. Uh, the first book was on the origins of unionism and the printing trades, and it sort of went back into the 18th century to trace that. A, a dry subject for most people, although I didn't particularly find it <laughs> find it that dry a subject. Uh, but when you start talking about the Civil War, you 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 are uh, you're taking it out of the realm of the um, drums and bugles and into the realms of what kind of societies it was that it, it was that fought this war. Uh, what sort of people were involved, what their interests were. You're dealing with the nature of political coalitions, social alliances. It's quite quite interesting. Uh, it's unfortunate that uh, more people don't take that approach to it, I think. Well, there's uh, the, the interest in the sort of traditional military history uh, certainly remains strong, but it does seem to me there's been a lot of, of variation from that in the last two There has. In, in, in historical writing, you, you've seen that as well. Yes. So the uh, what you've done here, uh, your your book starts out in Kansas before the war, uh, and, and and 
portrays that as a really an unusual place in in both place and time in American history. Can you talk about that? I, I suspect that the West always kind of is uh, in that period anyway, because you're really dealing with people who are sort of discontented with the way things are back home. So this is why you take off and you go West, if it's at all possible. And, of course, in the case of Kansas, you have the additional um, reality that, that the government in Washington has opened up this territory to the possibility of slaveholding. This winds up mobilizing large numbers of people who were at loose ends on one level. You had a depression in uh, 1857. Uh, you always had land hunger moving people in the free states. Uh, they always wanted the, uh, uh, aspired to land ownership and becoming their own boss, getting their own farm, that sort of thing. Kansas provided possibilities for that. Um, they didn't know what they were getting into, certainly. But what it means is that the, the actual settlement of Kansas, what becomes the, uh, the, the free state movement out there, is really a very, very interesting and complicated uh, polyglot, uh, a nice cross-section of uh, northern society in some ways. People at the very bottom of the uh, northern society, though, can't really afford to move out, can they? Not people at the very bottom, but artisans, skilled artisans certainly could. Um, and uh, there are a number of cases where people people do. Um, my earlier book on Young America, on the land reform movement, um, and how that fed into the sectional conflict and everything, uh, talked about some of those folks who were uh, shoemakers or printers or carpenters uh, in an eastern city and in uh, in Cincinnati or New York or Baltimore, um, who looked to the West as an opportunity to regenerate an American middle class and sort of stabilized the Republican tradition in the country. So they're willing to move out. And, and those further down the, the economic ladder can't afford to do it. Those further up are content where they are. They don't need to go out there. Right. And, and, but you also have some people at the bottom who are trying to do this collectively. You have you know, uh, clubs and societies, homestead associations formed in, in most of the big cities where people will contribute sort of like to a Christmas club. And then after a couple of years, you get enough money and you send someone out there and, you know, they are supposed to then send for people back home to come and join them. It was, it was a very creative process, the settlement of the West. Now, in Kansas, as you say, it's complicated by the, the introduction of slavery after the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854. Um, now you've got people coming not just from the eastern cities, but also from uh, the plantation belt of the south. How, how does that factor in? Well, uh, it's hard to say how many people are actually going out there. I think most of the population, most of the pro-slavery population that was actually settling in Kansas was coming in from Missouri. Um, the, reason is, the, the reason that slavery is important in Kansas has really nothing to do with slavery. In Kansas, it, uh, there are almost no slaves in Kansas at any point. It's the question of if you have a new state, a territory becoming a state, is that going to become part of the slave state coalition, uh, you know, contributing two U.S. senators to the uh, pro-slavery side in the Congress or not? And, and the Democrats are in a real dilemma in the 1850s, especially northern Democrats. Northern Democrats have tried to have some sort of an independent um, uh, reform presence uh, in their own states, in their own cities, uh, independent from the dominant Southern Caucus of the party. The problem is that uh, once we get into the 1850s, 
you know, and you get rid of the Missouri Compromise, then these new territories all come up for grabs. And the problem the Democrats face is that they have to prove to the South that using popular sovereignty, using a vote of people in the territory, uh, they can get new slave states if they accept that as, as sort of the new basis of the compromise. And the reality is that they can't. The, the, the free states are simply more numerous. Uh, people, you have more people with the wherewithal to go there. Um, I mean, if you consider the plantation south, uh, how many plantation owners are actually going to pick up and move to Kansas? Um, not many. So if you get that population uh, going out there, then the south is not in a very good position of expanding uh, slaveholding in the west. So the Democrats are fudging. You essentially have the uh, administrations of Franklin Pierce and later James Buchanan. At different points, they send what amounts to like half a dozen appointed territorial governors to Kansas with basically one point on their agenda, go out there and make sure that this, uh, this uh, territory will vote to become part of the Union as a slaveholding state. And these governors keep going back to Washington and saying, you know, we can't do this. <laughs> they're, they're shooting people out there. This is, uh, this is not the sort of thing that's going to make for a stable state. So they're, they're really not able to, uh, to deliver the goods, and it's what's going to lead to the demise of the Democratic Party, which was the dominant party in the country for a generation up to this. You, you point out that in the voting over the Lecompton Constitution, for example, there are 6,000 votes cast in a territory with only 2,000 people. Right. So, so it's clear that there's something going on, something corrupt going on, trying to get the, the, the pro-slavery government in place. This was no secret. The, the newspaper reporters would follow the uh, um, writers around as they went from one place to, to another, voting to establish a town, casting their votes to essentially adopt the Missouri Constitution in Kansas, and they get back on the horse, drive to another, go to another location, get off, do the same thing. Kansas was full of towns that had nobody in them. You you said a moment ago that people are shooting each other over this, and and I guess this brings us to the bleeding Kansas, to the the actual fighting that takes place. Um, that that is, you make an interesting comment in the book where you, you reference the scholarly debate over whether the Civil War is a total war, uh, and you suggest that in in Kansas it already is before the war. Yes, uh, how would do you mean that. by that? What do you mean by, by total war in that context? Well, there's, there's absolutely there's no compromise that can come out of this. One side or the other is going to have to win. And the line between civilians and armed participants just disappears. Uh, and that's true in terms of both sides. Well, the most, it's the, I guess the most famous example is, is John Brown and, and the Sack of Lawrence. Uh, right. Uh, are, are there other examples? All sorts of them. Well, of course, John Brown was uh, remembered for killing a family of, um, uh, well, the male members of the family of slaveholders um, uh, back where he was from at a point when it looked as though there was going to be another attack on Lawrence, and they essentially threatened the anti-slavery people around there. So his solution was a preemptive elimination of those folks before they left protect Lawrence. And of course you have the massacres of free state settlers, groups of them, 
that are taking place on a rather regular basis. It's a debate as to how much bleeding Kansas is actually bleeding, as to how many people are actually killed. Mm-hmm. But what we have to remember is that there's really not a lot of good record keeping out there. And, and uh, you know, by today's standards, if anyone, uh, you know, we have bitter partisan debate, but people are not literally killing one another in any kind of numbers. So uh, any, any killing is, is a lot in that context. We're going to take sure. a short break right now, and we'll come back in just a moment and talk more about race and radicalism in the Union Army on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Every Civil War student knows the story of the heroic 54th Massachusetts at Fort Wagner, but how many know of earlier examples of African Americans in combat, like the first Kansas? We'll talk about that when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Every day, men and women worldwide seek lasting love relationships. They submit their profiles to Internet dating services. Some find success, while many flounder in pursuit of lasting love. In Relationship Matters with Derek and Allison Young, you'll learn how certain mindsets and behaviors can either save relationships or sabotage them. Meeting people is only a part of the equation. Discover how you can find love that lasts. Relationship Matters is heard Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Mark Klaus, author of Race and Radicalism in the Union Army. We've been talking about the experience of settlers in Kansas before the war, setting the stage for the uh, bitter and uh, politically charged conflict that takes place there during the war. Uh, Mark, we were talking about the, uh, the, the conflict between northern and southern settlers in Kansas, uh, mostly over the issue of slavery. But your book introduces a third uh, element, a third social element, the uh, residents of the Indian Territory. Uh, uh, yes, that's, Kansas. Yeah, you can talk about that, please. Okay, it's it's quite quite interesting because we always talk about the Civil War in terms of race, and um, it's almost always simply in terms of uh, black and white. If you introduce the Indians, then you get an entirely different dimension. Uh, Indians had an entirely different different understanding. Well, they didn't have an understanding of race the way we do, um, the way people in the United States do. Indians had always been, um, well, you had, it's hard to call it slavery. We might call it slavery. You had forced labor of captives, for example, in fighting. Um, but you did not have a kind of an institutionalized racial system of slavery until it was sort of imposed on them. 
Um, and when I say imposed on them, when the Indians in the uh, territory were removed, these are the five civilized tribes, as they were called, the um, Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole, and Creek. If you were black and living among them, and there were many, and that's one of the reasons they were removed, um, if you were a slave in Georgia and the Seminoles were right down the road, you didn't have to escape and make it to Canada. You had to escape and make it to Florida. made it a lot easier. Um, so when these Indians were removed, uh, any slaves that were found with them, any blacks, would be confiscated by the U.S. government and resold. So many of the blacks who were living with these Indian nations went to the chiefs and got the chiefs to claim them as slaves. Because if they were then property of the chief, they would be removed to the West and be living with the Indians out there. Uh, so it's a totally different way of thinking about race when you look at this. There are a wide variety of different realities behind the legal existence of slavery among the Indian nations. Uh, in Kansas, Indians in Kansas were largely removed themselves at an earlier period of time and brought out, uh, that was part of the Indian Territory before the creation of Kansas and Nebraska. And these Indian groups, um, when they're dealing with the society around them, this whole controversy over slavery doesn't make a lot of sense to them um, for a wide variety of reasons. The, order, the uh, Office of Indian Affairs, the government agency that deals with the Indians, hmm. for a generation has been in the hands of Southern Democrats, and it is probably the, most, the single most corrupt part of the U.S. government up to this point. The Indians have very little respect for it. Uh, most of the whites who have anything to do with it uh, have no respect for it, and the Indians in Kansas view that as, as essentially the cutting edge in terms of the, the cheating that uh, goes on against them by the U.S. government. And, of course, when the Kansas-Nebraska Act is passed and they're attempting to impose uh, or attempting to create a state in Kansas, as far as the Indians go, this is being done by the same white Democratic government that removed them. And, and brought them out there in the first place. So there are interesting connections between the anti-slavery forces in Kansas, abolitionists like John Brown, and Indians. There are a couple of sort of local Indian chiefs in, uh, in Kansas who make very explicit connections to the anti-slavery movement and will hide out anti-slavery fighters when the uh, authorities are looking for them and so on. Well, when the war begins... In, in contrast to that, most people, I think I said this in the introduction to the show, think of Indian participation as supporting the Confederacy. And you have uh, Albert Pike and Stan Waddy and people like that who become known as, as uh, Indians uh, joining the South. Did And I guess that would make sense uh, if, if Indians perceive the government in Washington as their enemy, as, as the agency that removed them and is corrupt, that they would want to fight against it. Um, of course, those were Southern Democratic governments. The Indians do recognize that. So that, I guess that cuts the other way, then, that they would want mm -hmm. to fight. Uh, well, well, how does it shake out? How, who, who fights with who when the war begins? Essentially, the Indian leadership makes a decision in April of 1861. This is the U.S. government basically abandons the nations. They take the troops that are in the territory and they march them out, take them north to Kansas to concentrate them. 
This, this is essentially a U.S. violation of the, of the agreement, the treaty agreements with the Indians, which has taken away their right to defend themselves, their right to have an army, if you will, as an independent nation, uh, and expose them to whatever the fates have in store. These Indians are meeting, the Indian leaders are meeting, and deciding that they want to remain neutral in the conflict. And this suits the Lincoln administration just fine. They have their hands full. The idea of Indian neutrality, there's even a letter that Lincoln supposedly sent to the Creeks um, supporting their idea that they should remain neutral in the conflict, saying that the conflict really has nothing to do with them, they should stay out of it. It's a good decision. The Indians were scheduled to meet representatives of the nation in May and sort of confirm that as a group they were going to stay out of the war. Texas troops crossed the Red River and basically occupied the principal towns of the Choctaw and Chickasaw Nation at the time they were making their deliberations. And they were coerced, the way the Lincoln administration viewed it, they were coerced into repudiating their treaties with the United States and establishing new treaties with the Confederacy. These new treaties with the Confederacy had stipulations that were unique at that point. In a sense, they begin with the Indians and will wind up expanding this to the whites in 1862. But with these Indian treaties that they're making with the Confederacy, they're agreeing that every able-bodied male Indian of military age will turn out under arms to support the Confederacy when they get an executive order from Richmond. That was an article of the treaty. So on paper, uh, the Confederacy claims to have these thousands and thousands of armed Confederate soldiers. The reality was not so, uh, was not so optimistic for their point of view. If I can back up one, ask one question. The, uh, you, you observe uh, that the United States government uh, does not live up to its own obligation to defend the Indian nations. Right. Uh, but in 1861, uh, how could they have done that, uh, given the absolute lack of military force? They, they could barely defend Washington. Absolutely. Uh, uh, so they really, not to, it's not an argument that they didn't live up to the, Right. They, they could not have lived up to it. Uh, it's they not could not have. Will. But they didn't. From the Indian mm -hmm. perspective, they didn't. Okay. Uh, but still, you know, the, when the Confederacy comes in and they basically impose by force of arms is how I would describe it. Annie Abel, the original historian of this in 1910, 1911, describes it this way, too. The Confederacy comes in and essentially grabs the Choctaw and Chickasaw Nation. And at that point they start doing deals with factions among the Seminoles and the Creeks. All these Indian nations, however small, there are factions that exist among them, a great political division being on how they deal with the treaty removal, for, the treaties of removal, for example. Some of the Indians were, were opposed to it. Some of them saw it as a pragmatic accommodation. Basically, those who saw it as a pragmatic accommodation are predisposed to support the South because they were the folks they were pragmatically accommodating, right? Mm -hmm. And those who tend to resist, the sort of Indian traditionalists, if you will, the people like Billy Bowlegs, uh, old war chiefs who had fought the United States, paradoxically, they're the ones who tend to support the Union in all yeah, of this. Are those the pin Indians that we read about right. in the book? 
What, where does that Indians. come from? What's um, the source of that term? Well, supposedly the Penn Indians were so-called Penn Indians because they identified each other by wearing pins. I assume like straight pins in there. It's sort of like a badge indicating that they were um, one faction or another. Mm-hmm. It, it, it seems to originate among the Cherokee, but it also uh, is mentioned as existing among different Indian groups, including the Osage, who were all the so, way up in Kansas. But it kind of constitutes a... a um, anti-secessionist secret society, if you will. Mm-hmm. Kitawa was what they were called among the Cherokee. But um, as these, as, you know, these are people who are in part crystallizing and getting somewhere politically because of their resistance to what amounts to a de facto Confederate conscription. The Confederacy comes in and essentially makes enemies of these Indians who wanted to remain neutral. And, by and trying to draft them all. So they're going to be drafted. They're going to be fighting for a, uh, the, descend, the, the, the political descendants of the, the Southern Democrats who had dominated the federal government up to this point. Well, the, the, the principal Indian agent in the territory up to this point is uh, Douglas Cooper, who mostly who becomes a Confederate general. He makes a seamless transition from being a U.S. Indian agent to a Confederate Indian agent. The old drinking buddy of Jefferson Davis, right? Hmm. So, yes, they, they make the connection. They understand the connection. What happens in the winter of 61-62 is that the Confederates essentially come in and drive thousands of these Indians into exile. And where do I they mean, go? The, pardon? Where, where do they go, the exiles? North. Kansas, and uh, Kansas particularly. And, of course, Kansas... This is the other aspect of the problem. Kansas is in terrible shape. The population of Kansas is actually collapsed, partly because of the Depression and because people think that farming in Kansas is going to be like farming in Ohio or something. Uh, it's a much drier climate. There's no wood. There's just all sorts of problems. So the, the white population of Kansas is in distress. And then suddenly you were visited with 10,000, 20,000 Indian refugees. Major problem. Their solution, and here's where the old abolitionists come in, the solution is to arm them and take them back into the territory. Now, at first, it's going to be difficult because the after the Battle of Wilson's Creek, the Confederates have the upper hand, at least across the border in Missouri. Oh, yes. So, oh, yes. And, so, oh go ahead. No, no, you're, you're absolutely, absolutely right. And there's, of course, a natural reluctance, especially on the part of all those regular army people who had made careers fighting Indians. But after Pea Ridge, which is March 1862, when the Confederates are supposedly mutilating the bodies of, of Union soldiers, the Indian allies of the Confederacy, this is something that, cha- that drops a lot of the... Uh, uh, inhibitions that the federal government had about arming their own Indians. So now we have Indians fighting on both sides. Right. Although what's happening in the South, in the Confederacy, is a truly strange uh, phenomena. As I say, there were thousands on paper, but what that actually represented is kind of hard to say. The official Cherokee regiment was not Stan Wadey's regiment, but um, the regiment that was put together under Chief Ross's relatives. 
And Chief Ross is a key to watch. Chief Ross is opposed to session. He's um, not interested in an alliance with, the, with Richmond. Um, he has sort of gone along with it because if he didn't, he was worried that the Confederacy will do to the Cherokee what they did to the Seminole and the Creeks. The old technique that if you can't get the chiefs to agree with what you want, you just find someone to make the chief who will agree. And he was afraid that they were going to replace him with Stan Wadey. So he sort of gets ahead of this process. And Chief Ross is putting together this official Cherokee regiment. This regiment goes out into the field several times, and every time it goes into the field, it disintegrates because the members cross over and join the other side. Hmm. What becomes the uh, Third Indian Home Guard, one of the most interesting regiments I've ever read about, um, was, is the regiment commanded by William A. Phillips, the old abolitionist and friend of John Brown. When that regiment forms, the core of it is formed when the official Cherokee regiment, the Confederate regiment, crosses over and basically becomes a Union regiment. The sort of thing that's just not supposed to happen in our Civil War. So the lines are, are certainly blurred here where the same regiment crosses over overnight and becomes Union rather than Confederate. The sentiment was always Unionist. The sentiment was not secessionist. And as you point out, this is not unique in the South. Uh, among Indians, there are places like Western Virginia and Eastern Tennessee where there's plenty of Unionist sentiment sure. among white Southerners, uh, as well here among the Indian Southerners. And then you've got... Uh, uh, well, there, there's one line in the book uh, where you mentioned uh, one of these Indian units... Uh, fighting in, in, in a difficult spot, and eventually uh, a northern cavalry uh, unit arrives to save them. And you refer to the U.S. cavalry arriving just in time to save the Indians. Uh, I, I thought the whole book was written just to get to that line, actually. It was, uh, <laughs> that was strange, wasn't it? <laughs> it, was, it was just, just turning the, the, the Western movie theme on its head. Uh, but if that's not confusing enough, you've also got uh, African-American participation. Uh, uh, what, much what? the same. It's the same people who are doing both. It's basically Phillips, um, Dick Hinton, the old abolitionists who had, had been with John Brown before the war, are the ones who are putting together, consciously trying to put together a tri-racial Union army in the West. And how much it's success do they have? It, it's interesting because... What you think of uh, in terms of a military hierarchy, all the people who are trained in West Point, all the regular Army people, want to go east. They will do anything not to have to spend time someplace like Missouri. You know, the, uh, the, the resources are going east. The newspapers are covering what's going on in the east. That's what everybody's looking at. And what it leaves in the trans-Mississippi in the west is a kind of a backwater where there's a real crisis in terms of leadership. And these abolitionists, James Blunt, William A. Phillips, uh, Stephen Waddles, these folks are sort of stepping up and taking and filling that void in leadership. And they're doing it in a tremendously radical way. And, and, and you mentioned John Brown. Again, many of these people had been partners of Brown, either in Kansas or, or even in planning the Harper's Ferry raid. They, they were yes. people who knew him. So they sympathize with his views of a completely different vision of the United States. 
Totally different vision, yes. Um, at one point, when uh, Richard Hinton knows that Brown is planning some sort of a raid on pro-slavery territory, he's not thinking in terms of Harper's Ferry. He gets on his horse in Kansas, and he scouts to the south, and he rides over a lot of these territories, a lot of the places in the Indian Territory, like Honey Springs, along the military road, that will be the scenes of the fighting in the Civil War. So this idea of cutting slavery's expansion off in the West is, is, is there from the 1850s on. Well, let's stop here. We're going to take another short break. We'll come sure. right back, and we'll talk more with Mark Laus about race and radicalism and the Battle of Honey Springs when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. The battle at Honey Springs helped determine the fate of Arkansas in the Civil War, but could it have determined the entire direction of American society? We'll talk about that when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Ready to revolutionize your thinking? It's time to learn about the clarity, simplicity, and speed of systems thinking and how it can be applied to every aspect of your daily life. Each week, tune in to Steve Haynes Live and learn one systems thinking concept. You'll also learn three simple, clear, and integrated applications that you can use instantly. You can apply them to your life, job, family, organization, government, and or society. Steve Haynes Live broadcasts every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Join Steve, and together we will make a global difference. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with Mark Laus, author of race and radicalism in the Union Army. We've been talking about the raising of troops in the Trans-Mississippi of Indian regiments fighting uh, for the North as well as the South, sometimes the same regiment fighting first for the South and the North. Uh, and more, most recently, we were just discussing the raising of black regiments as well, uh, often officered by abolitionists who had gone to Kansas before the war, who had shared the experiences and ideals of John Brown, and now we're trying to put into play those ideals leading black troops in a war of liberation. Uh, so, Mark, by 1863, you've got this, uh, as, as you call it, a tri-racial army of, of white, black, and red soldiers uh, fighting for the Union. How uh, Tell us about some of the, their military experiences, uh, 
the, the Battle of Newtonia comes to mind, for example. Ah, Newtonia is interesting. It's one of those neglected uh, uh, battles. It's, it's, it takes place as part of the same Confederate counteroffensive in the fall of 1862, an attempt to influence the elections. Uh, the same as Antietam or Perryville or uh, Corinth and Iuka in Mississippi, the Confederates in the Trans-Mississippi attempt to reinvade Missouri and, and move into Newtonia in the southwest. And what's interesting about this is that the Indians, who are farmed as a home guard, the idea is that they're going to go back into the Indian territory. They wind up fighting with the whites to protect white farms in Missouri against the Confederacy. And it really kind of changes the nature of, uh, of what, what it means to be a home guard. Uh, the Indians do extraordinarily well. It's the description of what the Indians were doing at Newtonia. It's a little bit like Battery Wagner in, uh, in 1863 for black troops in the, in the East. Um, Lincoln himself is reading accounts of this and is talking, uh, you know, uh, issuing high praise to the heroism of the Indians who took the field on one flank of the Union line and basically held it until they ran out of ammunition. And just the picture, as you say, culturally of uh, a line of, of Indian soldiers defending white homesteads uh, against other white soldiers is, uh, is revolutionary in its implications. It is. It's a revolutionary in the idea that they are signing on, in effect, to defend their country. And it's an idea of what their country is and how that becomes, how that's in the process of changing. And, of course, what's going to happen is that black troops are going to be participating on the edges of that campaign, not in Newtonia, but in Butler County, uh, in, in, in Missouri. Uh, the first Kansas colored, led by some of the same folks as who, who are leading the Indian uh, regiments, winds up going into Missouri as sort of a, a sideshow of this larger Newtonia campaign and really fighting in the first battle of the war that has a strictly black regiment involved. Although it's important to note that blacks were members of the Indian units. These were the really integrated units in the Civil War. To be in one of these Indian Home Guard units, you had to be a resident of the Indian Territory. So if you were black and a resident of the Indian Territory, you were in the Home Guard. And we know that some of them were fighting as early as July 1862, a full year before the assault on, on Fort Wagner. The, the Home Guard, as you say, they're, they're the initial conception of the units and, and certainly their own desire was to go back home to back to the Indian territory and then take that back and in that sense as I was reading your description of how they weren't able to do that how the the Union strategy did not call for for that kind of uh, offensive it reminded me of the uh, East Tennessee regiments ah. in force desperate to get back into the mountains to their home counties and Yet under Buell, the, the strategy was different. Uh, the, the logistics, the, the strategic imperatives all called for something else, and those troops were bitterly disappointed that they couldn't fight for their own homes. Now, I suppose that's part of, of being in a military. The, the, soldiers, you know, the privates don't make the strategy. The, the generals sure. do. Uh, but these Indians were, were eager to get back, were they not? And the entire second Indian Home Guard, almost all of it, according to Blunt, basically just goes home. Um, in the summer of 62. They retake the Indian Territory, part of it, and then they're ordered out. And the reason they're ordered out is, is interesting because it's a problem you don't see in other parts of the country. I, um, 
Remember that wonderful book by a, a veteran of the Army of the Potomac, uh, Hard Pack and Coffee, Billings? Yeah, Billings. He, Billings. He talks about how he never, never knew of a Union soldier that went hungry. They're spoken like a good member of the Army of the Potomac. <laughs> These people sometimes wound up down to half rations, quarter rations, no rations. Uh, and the logistics of going into the Indian Territory from Kansas were just horrific. The uh, railroad went as far as Rolla, Missouri. Then you had a telegraph road that continued on down to Springfield. Line of supply went to Fort Scott. And you had these long mule trains going south from Fort Scott. Very vulnerable line of supply going down into the territory if you were going to go there. And, of course, the option, the option is after 1863, you can open up the Arkansas River and supply it by river. But that's not really done. Uh, there is a conscious decision made at one point that they were not going to move the Indians back into the territory and, and really secure them there and keep them there. Um, and that's partly a reflection of the nature of the Union coalition, the Unionist coalition. It's not led by idealists. Um, eventually, well, eventually the, the Union does make another attempt to move south. and It does. And, we get the the battle, the the largest battle in in the book that you have written uh, at Honey Springs, where you have the Indian Home Guard regiments, you have the First Kansas Colored, you have uh, white troops, I think from Wisconsin, uh, Ohio, Colorado, uh, Colorado. That's right, you have the Colorado That's regiment. That's strange. <laughs> uh, so from from all over the Union, uh, and uh, well, tell us about that battle. Well, when they moved back into uh, the Indian Territory the second time, the, the thing to remember is as these lines are moving back and forth, that total war thing means that you're totally churning up the civilian population. It, it's not safe. No matter where you stand on the issue of the war, at some point or another, the enemy's going to be occupying. So, it, you know, one of the Union scouts rides from Fort Gibson down around present Muskogee in Oklahoma, and he's riding to Springfield to the Telegraph. And as he's covering this incredible distance, um, like 150 miles, something like that, he says he sees three or four people. And this is an area that was a well-populated, well-settled farm country before. Something like uh, four out of five buildings in that corner of Missouri and on down into Arkansas and through the territory is simply destroyed in the course of the war. So it looks like Eastern Europe in World War II, only it's all done by hand. So when, when they move back into this area, they don't have uh, a secure source of food. It's not like you have a civilian population there, say in the Shenandoah Valley, growing crops. Um, the Indians were stock raisers. Their cattle is loose. Nobody's been taking care of them. The area is rife with uh, um, all sorts of speculators. The only thing they can do in terms of reestablishing control, is pushing the Confederates out of at least a corner of the territory. But the Confederates come back in force, and they basically surround Fort Gibson and are threatening to uh, capture the entire of them. And it's at that point that the Black Regiment, as part of a relief column, comes down from Kansas, saves Fort Gibson, and then they go after the retreating Confederates and fight them at Honey Springs. So Must have been an interesting day. 
It, it, it must have been. I mean, you describe it's a hot day. The troops are taking off their shirts, uh, uh, their overcoats, fighting uh, uh, under the sun, and and uh, and, and in Oklahoma. Yeah, <laughs> it would be hot. Uh, and and the the Union forces drive the rebels off the field. Yes. Well, you know, some of the uh, the Confederates have about twice as many people on the field as the Federal. The the Confederates, though, include a lot of the Indian units there. And the Indian units are never a few exceptions. There's a Choctaw Regiment, and, of course, there's Stan Whitey's sort of mounted raiding group. But other than that, most of these Confederate regiments of Indians are just really not that committed to what they're doing. So they tend to want to leave at the first opportunity. Um, the Texans come up, and they've actually carried with them 400 shackles because they know that they're going to be coming up against the first Kansas colored. And they have every expectation that as soon as they see white men with guns coming towards them, they're going to throw down their guns and surrender, and they're going to make a fortune, bringing them all back to Texas and selling them. But it they, they got a surprise. So it goes the other way. They are, they're driven from the field. Um, and the Union then essentially controls, uh, within a few weeks of this battle, most of Arkansas. Uh, By the time you get to early September 1863, there's a campaign that goes through the territory below Honey Springs even um, and sort of sweeps the Confederate forces out of the region, captures Fort Smith. There's a simultaneous move from the east where they capture uh, Little Rock. And from that point on, the Arkansas River is open. That means that if you want to supply Fort Gibson in the Indian Territory by water, by steamboat, you can do it. So you'd think uh, we're at the happy ending. Supplies come up the river. The Indians get their homes back. uh, Arkansas is pacified. It doesn't work out that way. No, it doesn't. Um, What happens, of course, there's a a subtext that's been going on all through this. Um, Some of the Kansas politicians, people like James, uh, James Lane, Jim Lane is quite interested in helping the Indians in this entire process because he doesn't want Indians in Kansas. And this includes the Indians that are in Kansas. But if you're going to remove the Indians from Kansas, who've already been removed from other places, right, but you're going to remove them again to the Indian Territory, you can't do that because you have treaties that define where these nations are in the Indian Territory. So you need to find a way to break the political strength of the Indian nations, who are your allies in all of this. This is where the whole thing becomes remarkably 20th century in some ways. Uh, The logistics, the Office of Indian Affairs and the licensed monopolists who get to do business with the Indians have absolutely no interest in resupplying the Indians. As long as you keep them where they're at, you're keeping them in debt. You're keeping them dependent on these businesses, members of the business. You're not just talking about people who are, you know, outside of government. One of the owners of the business down there is the governor of Kansas. Um, supposedly, quite credibly, I think, General James Blunt himself is bought into this. There are union generals who are part of this enterprise as well. So they want to keep a monopoly over who's selling things to the Indians, not supplying them with rations, of course, keeps things like food at a premium. Um, At the same time, the government is contracting in Kansas 
to rustle Indian cattle. This is remarkable, I think. <laughs> but you actually have teams of army-escorted rustlers coming down from Kansas into the Indian Territory, stealing Indian cattle. Because they're doing that, they don't want to remount the Indians. So the Indians who are effective when they're on their ponies or have horses and can, move and can be a mobile strike force are left on, you know, on foot. So you've got the Indians under white military leadership fighting or at least trying to resist against other federal officers trying to take their own, take their cattle away. They actually shoot army contractors at one point. And this leads to the removal of William Phillips. He's in Fort Smith. Um, under house arrest for several months in 1864. Since we're running short of time, let me ask a, a question that you raise both in the introduction and the conclusion of your book. Um, you draw a contrast between Honey Springs and other battles which are heavily memorialized, which if you go to the field today you can see the monuments and the interpretation of the field. Uh, the troops who won the battle at Honey Springs don't come back, don't have reunions, don't put monuments on the field. Uh, they treat that battle differently than many other Union veterans did. Why is that? They do. The, uh, the black, uh, the, the veterans of the first Kansas color do come down there. But, you know, Honey Springs is sort of like a little crossroads. There's no problem finding Honey Springs. They always knew where that was. But the, where the actual battle took place, where it started, was a couple of miles up the Texas road, up the military road. Uh, down from Fort Gibson and heading south from there toward Texas. And where exactly that road is, at certain points, you, could, you can still see where the road goes through private you know, farm fields down there. But where the battle actually took place, they had to locate relatively recently the archaeologists from the Oklahoma Historical Society were out there with their metal detectors finding out where the, where the lines were. If it had been Shiloh or someplace like that, or even Newtonia, as far as that goes, the veterans would have gone back and marked the territory. They had something to celebrate, even, even their own survival. The Indians didn't. Uh, it was uh, a curious war and a curious uh, battle that pits these different forces uh, fighting for very different things against each other. Mark, we are out of time, but I want to thank you very much for being on the show. Well, thank you. And listeners, you'll want to take a look at Race and Radicalism in the Union Army and Mark Laus. Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.